0: The scripture passage for today is Romans 13, 1 through 7, and it says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed.
1: Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we come before you. Asking, Lord, that you open up our hearts to your word. I pray, Lord, for those who are here today, those who are watching online, God, that you speak to us in this moment. We thank you for what you've done for us, for making it possible for us to be here through what Christ did on the cross for us may we see your glory in this passage now more. Than ever. Well, and we pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It is great to be here today and it is great to see you, uh, your faces. And for those who are watching online, we want to welcome you as well. Before we get started, I want to say thank you to Trenton and to Samantha and to Lance and Derek for leading us today. It truly is a a beautiful thing that this isn't just a youth Sunday, but Trent's been helping. Derek plays uh, on a regular basis. Trent does, and um, this is what it means. You know, a couple months ago, we went through a series called "Growing Young," and what does it look like to to give keys to young people to have a place in the life of our church that they just don't show up, but they they learn and they get to participate in even though they're 15 or 16 or 18 or 12, that they truly have something to offer the body of Christ. And without them, the body of Christ would not be as complete. Just as for the person who's 80 or 90 years old, that it takes everyone, truly every generation, to make up the body of Christ. And so I want to say church being gracious to for being able to lead us today, and for, for church, for allowing us, and a church being gracious to, to recognize that it's not just about us, but it's about the body in this moment. So thank you all, and you did a, a marvelous job, and uh, Mandy is out today, and that's why they are filling, and so it, it is a, a great thing that we have, uh, that we can depend upon y'all in this time. We are continuing in our series through Romans. I don't always need to say that, but we are for those who may not know. Last week we looked at Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21, and that when we embody the gospel highlights, we, we saw there that it's the body of Christ, that when we embody the gospel, we are transformed in the local church Uh, and we have to love those inside the church and when we love those outside the church we are transformed and the body of Christ is transformed and and I kind of talked about that there is a verse verse 12 of uh, verse 9 of uh, chapter 12 Um, I, I apologize it's verse 12 of chapter 12 and it's there that we see this idea of of hope, and patience, and prayer, and it's those three things that are to guide the body of Christ, and today we're looking at a passage, as Paul continues this thought of, of how the church is to be transformed, we saw this in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and today we're in Romans chapter 13, and I'm going to be honest with you, it isn't a passage that I would have selected at this time of the year. But when you kind of are going through a book, you kind of go to the next passage and you really can't say anything. And if I were to skip it, everybody would notice. Well, hey, the pastor, he skipped these verses. He didn't want to talk about them. And so that's one of the great things as we go through a book. And even though we're going through the book of Romans backwards, today we're at a passage that I think is pertinent for us to examine One that, as we read, it may bring a lot of feelings to us, and that's okay. We may have a lot of thoughts, you may have a lot of thoughts, but but what I hope in this time is that we can, I know as I was prepared to reflect upon God's word and allow God's word to penetrate our hearts, I know as I was preparing for this sermon, that God spoke to me in this way, that he challenged things in my own life, things that I hold to, things that I have to let go of. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to be in Romans 13, 1 through 7, and so there is too much to kind of fit into one sermon. I didn't think y'all would want to be here a 50-minute sermon, so we're kind of truncated a little bit, and we're going to follow up next week as we continue to examine that. I don't think that I necessarily have to spell out all the details to this, but, but if we look through church, not church history, but history in general, we see this notion that there are good governments and then there are, are bad governments. I don't know if I need to spell out the details of the bad governments. We can recognize those, and we don't have to go back very far, just to to the 20th century and recognize that there there are unjust laws. And we also can look throughout history, and we can see that there are unjust laws. And we see people who resist unjust laws. One that you may not be familiar with is a guy named Charles Finney. Yes, Charles Finney. He actually was... Uh, one of the great revivalists of the, the, the 19th century. But Charles Finney, when he was at Oberlin College, and those students at Oberlin College helped slaves escape the South. There are others who resisted unjust laws, and we also can see history full of people supporting unjust laws. So what are we to do? In light of what our text today, how are we to understand our relationship with the governing authorities? What does that look like for us? And I hope this week we can really look at this theological foundation, the principle behind this text in Romans thirteen one through 7. And then from there, next week of Christ, particularly really some practical ways of how this manifests itself in the body of Christ, particularly here in America in the 21st century. But church, what I want you to know is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ directs our engagement with the governing bodies of our society. The first and foremost, how we relate to the governing authorities, whether they be local or state or federal, The gospel is to direct that engagement. Now, again, I think this goes without saying that there is the dilemma of politics. I experience it. You experience it. We get to participate in our elections. We get to participate in our government in ways that people could have never imagined, that Paul could have never imagined. But sometimes... It's a difficult thing to navigate. An opportunity to make a me before we get into any of this today, church, is that this is not an opportunity to make a political statement. I'm not endorsing any candidate or political party, but I'm trying to be faithful to what God's Word says, so I want you to hear me in that. The second thing is, is we can't solve every policy issue or to wait, but I believe that we're going to always be exceptions, things that we aren't able to cover But I believe that when we look at Scripture, that there is an adequate word about what is to guide the people of God. So I want you to know that. That this isn't an opportunity to to speak into any of the situation. In fact, I I was hoping that all of this would be over, but it's not. But I think perhaps maybe God has a word for us this day. So the dilemma of politics often goes something like this. I support the government if it's the one I elect, and I cannot support the government if it's the one I do not elect. And I know we can, we can laugh a little bit about this because we, we need to to get through this sermon. We're going to have to have a little bit of humor in this. But I think we all can recognize and empathize with a little bit of this. It's so much easier to support a government when it's the person you elect, is it not? I mean, it's just the truth. It's easier to do that. And sometimes when the shoe is on the other foot, it becomes a little bit more difficult. But what I want us to do in this time as Christians, as people of God, as people of the Word, is to see, as Richard Hayes in his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, talks about and challenges Christians of how do we navigate ethics? and relating to others, and to governing authorities. How do we examine the New Testament? What is it that Paul is getting at that is to guide the church, to guide individuals? And he really boils it down to that the way that that is to guide Christians is that we are churches that you have to imitate. Constantly, Paul is telling his believers in those churches that you have to imitate Christ. Philippians chapter 2 is one of the most prominent passages of where we are to have the attitude. We are to do what Christ did who humbled himself. We see that throughout Paul's letters in the New Testament, that we are called to emulate and to imitate Christ Jesus. And the other thing that Richard Hayes talks about, that it's it's the unity in the body of Christ in those local places, whether it be in Corinth or Colossae or Galatia, they are to be a witness, that the unity of those bodies are to exemplify where they live out imitating Christ. And at that point, Christians are to shape everything in their lives around those things, how we are to imitate Christ. So when Paul looks at situations as he does today in Romans 13, or as he talks about sexual ethics or any other topic, Paul is theologizing, he's giving pastoral advice He doesn't want to just talk about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 to talk about marriage, but because there is an issue, and he's helping them think through it, but he does it through the lens of how we are to imitate Christ, what builds up the body of Christ. And so for us, as we examine this passage in Romans 13, how are we imitating Christ? How does this impact the local body? How are we allowing the gospel to speak into our life? Because sometimes it's easy to kind of sequester off an area and say, you know what, this is the way I want to be shaped and I have my opinions, I have my thoughts. I'm not going to allow something else to speak into it. But the gospel must direct our engagement with the governing authorities and really all of life. If the gospel isn't shaping how we live our life, then we're kind of missing the point of the gospel, or failing of politics, Christ. So we all recognize there's this dilemma of politics, and before we can continue, we kind of need to clear some rubble off the ground. You see, if we look at scripture, there's not a monolithic view of how we are to understand how we relate to the governing authorities, There are multiple passages in Scripture that kind of say a few different things. Our text today, Romans 13, 1 through 7, we hear this idea about being submissive to the governing authorities. But if you kind of turn a few pages and you go to Revelation chapter 13, and whether that's a government in the future or it's being portrayed as Rome or a little bit of both, we see Revelation chapter 13 and we see that the state is a terrible, terrible thing that oppresses believers. It gives a completely different picture of what we see in that passage. And then we have Jesus's own words in Luke chapter 22, verse 21, where he says these famous words, render passage, we can go actually into God's, what is God's. And there's another passage, we can go actually to first Peter chapter 2, 13 through 14, today in Romans 13, 13 through 14 and we see something similar to what we find in our text today in Romans 13 and then we get into 1 Timothy chapter 2 when Paul tells Timothy to do what to pray for your leaders and these weren't saints that they were called to pray for these were roman emperors who were probably the most immoral and corrupt people that you could imagine and then we see in acts chapter 5:29 when the apostles tell the officials, these Sanhedrin officials, that we must obey God and not man. So how do we make sense of this? We have all these different passages that maybe speak to similar truths, but also very different. What do we do? And I would tell us that we can't devolve into what ethicists call situational ethics. That we approach every situation independently and in and of itself. That in this situation we do X and then in this situation we'll do Y. I think if we move into situational ethics, we kind of, I think, are missing these mountaintops that we see throughout Scripture. One in particular going back to what? Imitating Christ. The body of Christ. The unity in the body. That the gospel directs our engagement in all areas of life, including here, in relating to the government authorities. So I would argue that Paul is not offering, in Romans 13, 1-7, a systematic approach of church-state relations. He's pastoring his people in this moment, in that context, Just as these other authors do, for example, in 13, in Acts, we see their example, but they are guided by Christ. So, how do we go forward? We're doing a lot of groundwork, so just bear with me if you're thinking, what does all this mean? But, But we have to lay a foundation for us to build on before we can examine Romans 13. So, path forward for us. Paul, as I've referenced, is pastoring those house churches in Rome. There's five house churches. They're all diverse. There's issues that they're facing. We've examined those issues. And Paul is offering pastoral advice and wisdom on how they are to begin to relate also to their governing authorities. Rome was the center of power. So whether Paul thought one of these Roman officials would read his letter? I'm not sure. But Paul, throughout his letter, is basing everything. His whole gospel, from what he spells out in Romans chapter 1, is based upon what? Jesus, the crucifixion, the resurrection. It is a new gospel. There's a new age that is being birthed because of the resurrection. And Paul is telling them to imitate Christ. We also need to realize something as well that when Paul wrote and articulated his gospel in Romans or when he wrote other letters, when he visited those church those when he was on his missionary journeys and he established churches and he preached this gospel that sometimes we see that they take this gospel that Paul proclaimed and they begin to kind of go to the extreme in Corinth is a perfect example of this. If Paul went and established a church in Corinth around AD 50, that's what scholars estimate. Well, Paul writes First Corinthians in AD 56. Now, if you're not familiar with First Corinthians, it's interesting because one, there's this unity in the body of him Kind of de- sudden, Paul is having to combat some kind of deviations that they had made with the gospel. Because there's freedom in the gospel, there's freedom in Christ. Paul preached a gospel of freedom. They had taken that freedom to the extreme. First Corinthians chapter 5, he tells them and says, There is a man sleeping with his stepmother, and this is unacceptable. You can't do this type of behavior. And they thought, hey, we're free in Christ, because you know there's, there's grace, and so we can continue to sin. And there's also these things called Corinthian slogans and throughout the letter where we see people began in Corinth to take what Paul said and to twist it, to take it to the extreme. And Paul is having to come back and say, no, 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 that's not what I meant. We've got to correct this. And sometimes he does this in a very pastoral, loving way. And other times he's very clear. As in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, to the man sleeping with his stepmother, he says, if this guy isn't going to repent, throw him out. Paul. When he gets back to 1 Corinthians, he wrote, there, wrote this letter in A.D. 56. They had kind of overreacted to the gospel he had proclaimed. Well, Paul, it's interesting, he, he's writing Romans from Corinth. Now, all of this will make sense in just a minute, so hang with me. If Paul wrote Romans from Corinth in around A.D. 57... A letter that's going to be read at the center of power throughout the Roman Empire. And Paul's gospel, obviously, can sometimes be misconstrued for what he's saying. They take it to the extreme. Because Paul preached a gospel, one where we see some powerful things begin to take place. One, that Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not Lord. One, that you're a new creation. Some of these things that Paul is preaching throughout his gospel could be misconstrued in some capacity. And so what Paul is doing is he's likely kind of hedging and guarding against an overreaction to his gospel that those in Rome would have read. And and here are some of the truth claims that came from the Roman Empire. Because Paul, throughout his letters, he kind of says something a little bit different. Caesar Augustus was said to be a god. It was said when he was born that he was the son of God. But what does Paul's, Paul's gospel say? You go to Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Who is the son of God? Jesus. Jesus is the son of God. A powerful statement in the Roman Empire that Caesar is not Lord, but Jesus is Lord. Roman emperors believed they were to be worshipped, idolatry. And what does Paul say? That some Romans are idolatrous. Rome believed they were favored by the God. And that it was Rome who was bringing the whole world under its control. They wanted to make everybody Roman citizens. To be part of the Roman Empire. But Paul says that our citizenship is where? Good news. The Evangelion. Rome spoke of a gospel. Good news. The Evangelion is what it means in Greek. It means good news. Rome preached this good news that came. With Rome. But Paul preached what? A new gospel. This good news of Jesus Christ that ushered in a new era. The Roman Empire, they preached a gospel of one called peace and security. Paul references this actually in 1 Thessalonians 5 3. It was the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. That wherever Rome went, that there was peace and security. But Paul says in Romans 15:33, and they haven't read got to that point as they're listening to this letter, those house churches in Rome. He says that God is the God of peace. Philippians chapter four verse seven, that Jesus is the one who offers peace that surpasses all understanding. The Roman Empire, they believed that it was sovereign only and that it was the will of the gods for its ongoing success. But Paul said and the gospel, he proclaimed that the God of Israel was, who was revealed in Christ Jesus is sovereign alone and who one day, what, every tongue and every knee will confess that he is Lord. So what Paul is doing when he is communicating, He's articul- Paul is not communicating what I would call a political gospel. He's articulating the one true gospel. But the very things that Paul is saying challenges the narratives and the truth claims made by the Roman Empire. Now, imagine with me, you're listening to this letter being read. You're in one of these house churches, and you're hearing all these things. Oh, Caesar is not Lord. I'm a citizen of heaven, not of Rome. He's the one who's in control. I can imagine there's some who all of a sudden want to take Paul's words and go to the extreme. And what's the next step in that? It's rebellion. And it's very likely that Paul is is holding back and saying, No, 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 this isn't what this is about. It isn't about rebellion. It about overthrowing Rome. And so then he and he says to him this, let one through seven. And he says to him this: Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, you've heard all what Paul, Paul says. You're in those house churches. You're ready for some change. But something happens. You hear these words, and the air is sucked out of this room. Just when you thought Paul might say, yeah, you know what? You can rebel. Paul knew that what would have happened, it would have been if a few hundred people rebel. They would have been quickly ended by the Roman Empire. But I don't even think Paul really wanted them to rebel. But he squashes that thought right there. By saying, be subject to the governing authorities. Now what does that mean? Be subject to the governing authorities. Began his persecutions, Roman emperors, namely Nero at this point, has not began his persecutions just yet, but an emperor before him named Kaluga was actually a cross-dresser, a very immoral person. You can read about it, the terrible, terrible, terrible person, just as many of them were, and yet Paul tells them to be subject to the governing authorities, to submit. It cuts against us, doesn't it, when we hear that word, to submit to the governing authorities. I think our sinfulness We don't like to submit to anything, really. I mean, that's the problem of sin in the world, is we are, what, in disobedience, resisting God. But here Paul tells them, let every person be subject, submit to the governing authorities. He continues by saying, for there is no authority except, Paul is saying, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Paul is saying that whether these governments realize it or not, whether the Roman emperor emperor realizes it or not, there is one who is standing behind these governing authorities. And it is God. God is the one who is standing. And Paul tells them to submit. And I would submit to you. That submitting to the governing authorities is not the exception, but the expectation. Because when we begin to think about, well, what about this, Pastor? Well, what about this situation, Pastor? What about this situation? We could have a hundred different possibilities of what about. But I think what Paul is saying in our passage, that submission to the governing authorities, is the expectation. It's the expectation for us, not the exception. Now, there are exceptions. And that's something we will talk about more in detail next week. But, but God has instituted these governing authorities. Whether they recognize them or not, he is in control and governing authorities are there to do things. And when they act in good ways, when they uphold justice, because he just told those believers to not take revenge, vengeance is God. And here the state has a responsibility to administer justice, to punish evildoers and wrongdoers. But regardless, those governing authorities, there is someone standing behind them, and it is God. And God uses these governing authorities to ultimately accomplish his providential will in the world. Now, we may not understand that. But that God is this presenting all things to his good and to his purposes, bringing this present age to an end when the future kingdom will come. But that's a sermon in and of itself. What is God's will? particularly when we look at examples like the Holocaust and atrocities under the Communist Revolution in China or the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia? Where's God at in those moments? And I don't want to get into those details, but that's a question we can wrestle with at some point about understanding God's will, What I would call his antecedent will, what God hopes for and longs for, and his consequent will, his permissive will, what God allows in the world. Regardless, Paul, so we're going to hold on to that one. But regardless, Paul is saying that there is one who is behind these governing authorities, there is one behind them. I think in verse 5, we see, as we continue in our text, he tells them, therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Paul, again, is alluding to this point of how we are to submit to these governing authorities. That we don't submit to the governing authorities in and of themselves is what Paul is saying. But we are submitting in effect, to the person who is behind those governing authorities. We can submit to the leaders and officials in our society because Christ stands behind them. And to openly resist, to cast doubt, to refuse to submit, I think is to, to cut against God's order To submit, and of what we see here, that there are governing officials and we are called to submit, but we do it for the sake of conscience, we do it not for them, but for who Jesus to imitate Jesus in what we do. Paul even continues to say in verses six through seven about paying taxes to pay taxes to who taxes are owed. Nobody likes to pay taxes. Yeah. That's right. I've never met a person who wants to pay more taxes. I want to pay less taxes. It's interesting, though, that Paul doesn't have to tell them to do that. In the Greek, it's not an imperative statement. It's an indicative statement. He's just saying you pay your taxes to continue paying your taxes. At that point, they have not refused paying their taxes, and so Paul tells them, to keep doing that. Even probably in spite of some grumbling and some bickering, them to give respect to it, but they are doing that. He encourages honor is due. Respect is due. To give honor to our honor is due. How does one honor a Roman emperor who's a cross-dresser and an immoral person? Talk about a conundrum. But here yet, Paul is telling them to pay your taxes to this government, to pay your revenues, to show respect, and to show honor. As I said, I don't think Paul preached a political gospel. He simply preached the one true gospel. Paul offered an alternative. To the prevailing narratives of the Roman Empire. One that found its validity in the work of Jesus. That Jesus lived, was crucified, and was resurrected from the grave. Galatians 1.4 says this, Jesus, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God. Paul rooted everything that shaped his life, even the way that he was to engage and to, and to engage with those governing authorities. The reason why we can be sub- submissive to the governing authorities is because of what Christ has done. When we submit, we're submitting not to them, but to the one behind them, and that's a hard thing to hear, isn't it, church? Because we're all sinful people. We all have our desires. Some days the Texan in me shows a little bit louder than other parts of me, than the Christian in me. The resistance to governing authorities is something we all struggle with. But to them, because Paul tells us that we are to submit to them, because in reality we are submitting to them. To the crucified and resurrected Lord standing behind them. The gospel is to direct our engagement with our governing bodies, with those in authority over us, not just outside. We could take government and put it aside, but we all have bosses, we all have people we respond to. There's authority that God has given that's a part. Churchers, churchers, to kind of recap for us, I would say this, and I think what Paul in our passage is saying is one, that Jesus is Lord over all. That the only way that those Christians in Rome could submit to a pagan government is because the person that they knew who really, truly stood behind them. whether in this life through tribulation as we saw last week or in the future in God's future kingdom that Jesus is Lord and we hope and we long for that day and the second thing is that we are to submit to the governing authorities it is the expectation and not the exception now know what you're thinking Kevin, this is all good and well, but I got to go to work tomorrow or I'm going to turn on the news today and I'm going to get fired up about something. Right? I mean, I can't be the only one who struggles with this church. like we We all experience it. But as we look to next week, how do we, as the people of God, Live out our. Again, and I think scripture gives us again the way forward. But it's a difficult thing. When do we resist our governing authorities? How do we navigate unjust laws or in the future unjust laws? How do we navigate an encroachment? against religious liberty. Because there could very well be a day in the future where religious liberty is not what it is today. How do we navigate that as believers? What is to guide us in how we interact with our governments, whether they be local, state, or federal? It's a difficult thing, but I want to give us a preview, just briefly, of what we're going to be looking at next week. There's three areas that I think that we see in Scripture in Romans 13, 1 through 7, and we're going to examine some of these other passages. We proclaim gospel narratives in our culture. That there are narratives, just like in the Roman Empire, ideologies, truth claims that are being made, and that the church, the people of God, have to proclaim a different message. We have to embody the gospel in powerful, transformative ways. But we have to, one, proclaim an alternative that's rooted in the gospel, one that subverts our cultural narratives. We can talk about this. I mean, we know, talk about sexuality or identity. Narratives that are being pushed upon individuals and our young people. Other narratives about that you can just do what you want in life to no consequence. So one, I think that we have to, Proclaim gospel narratives that subvert our cultural narratives, just as Paul did. The second is patient obscurity. That we have patience in this time of waiting. It's using wisdom as we navigate, of not making mountains out of every molehill. Of being as innocent as a dove and wise as a serpent. As we navigate a changing culture. That we seek wisdom from God. And third is prophetic witness. That at some point, when there are things that come from our governing authorities, whether they be in the next five years or in 20 years, that the church, that the people of God, we say no. I'm not going to listen to man, but I'm going to follow God. That we have a prophetic voice, one that is rooted in Scripture and the work of Jesus, and it allows believers, just as in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were able to, against these Babylonian leaders, and say so you can do to us as you wish but we will not deny our god so proclaiming gospel narratives patient obscurity and prophetic witness so i hope you'll join us next week as we continue to explore what it looks like for us as the people in a way that cries to submit to our governing authorities in a way that Christ commands us to. Let us pray together. Father, we come before you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we pray for our country. God, that even when we don't understand all that you're doing, that we trust you. And we realize that you are the ones behind, standing behind our governing authorities. That even though we may not always comprehend how you are in control, but that you are in control. I pray for everyone here today who struggles just as I struggle, Father. With making sense of how we are to live out the gospel. I pray, Lord, for our church, that you guide us and protect us as we take this message of hope that comes from you alone beyond Eastland County. But God, that we are faithful also in Eastland County. God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. long, Father, for the day that we are all together in your future kingdom, where every knee and tongue will confess that you, we pray these things in your Son, our Lord. How we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.